Genesis chapters 1 and 2 are not contradictory, but they certainly are different. Well, how can they be different but not contradictory? This week on Creation Magazine Live. It's reasonable and logical to be a Christian, and we'll discuss yet another reason why on today's podcast. Welcome to Creation Magazine Live. My name is Richard Fangrad. And I'm Calvin Smith. This week on Creation Magazine Live, our topic is, are Genesis 1 and 2 contradictory? Well, we already gave you the answer uh, <laughs> uh, that they're not contradictory, but many people think that they are. We'll explore that puzzle in this next half hour. Yeah, this is a popular question that Creation Ministries International yes. speakers often hear from Christians all around the world. I've heard it many times. I'm sure you've heard it too. Um, anyway, probably the most obvious uh, things that people notice here uh, is it seems to be a difference in the order that things are created in. Um, Genesis 1 seems fairly straightforward. Everything's created in six days, one, two, three, four, five, six days, uh, yeah. with different things created uh, on each day. But then in Genesis 2, it doesn't seem to be laid out uh, as neatly as in Genesis 1. In Genesis 1, animals are created before Adam, but in Genesis 2, they seem to be created after Adam. Okay, all right, let's look at the text. Between the creation of Adam and the creation of Eve, the King James Bible says in Genesis 2.19, Out of the ground the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every fowl of the air. Now, on the surface, this seems to say that land animals and birds were created between Adam and Eve. Right, but in Genesis 1, it clearly says they were formed before Adam and Eve. Beginning at verse 23, it says, And there was evening, and there was morning, the fifth day. So there's the end of day five. That's right. And, yep. and God said, Let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, livestock and creeping things, and beasts of the earth according to their kinds. And it was so. And God made the beasts of the earth according to their kinds, and the livestock according to their kinds, and everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, let us make man in our image. So people um, say that this is a, a, a contradiction. So you, you, you can't yeah. take Genesis as real, a real historical account. It must be poetic or allegory or, or something like that. Right. The, the supposed contradictions fall away when we dig into the text a little bit deeper. Mm -hmm. a Hebrew, the original language of Genesis, has no specific verb form to indicate the pluperfect tense uh, because in Hebrew, the precise tense of a verb is determined by the context. Mm -hmm. uh, a, a number of Hebrew scholars and commentators have rec uh, recognized that the context of Genesis 2 suggests the pluperfect tense for these events. Uh, they're, they're being recounted for purposes, uh, for, for, for the purpose of chapter 2. They're being recounted right. from chapter 1. The, the pluperfect tense of a verb is used when referring to something that happened before another past event. In English, you, you add the word had before the, uh, the, the past participle of a, of a verb. So if we, we translate verse 19 to, a more clearly, uh, to more clearly communicate the original language, as many popular translations actually do, it would read this way. Now, the Lord God had formed out of the ground all the beasts of the field. And then right. the apparent uh, disagreement with Genesis 1 disappears completely. The animals yeah. are already there, just like it says in chapter 1. Right. Yeah. Now, what about the plants? Uh, some also see a problem with the plants and herbs in Genesis 2, verse 5, 
which in some English translations seem as though they came into being after Adam, supposedly contradicting the order in Genesis 1 that had plants on day 3 and people, of course, on, on day 6. Right. Well, notice that the plants and herbs are described as of the field in Genesis 2 to 5. Uh, it says, when no bush of the field was yet in the land and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land and there was no man to work the ground. Okay. And one of the reasons why these particular plants hadn't sprung up is that there was no one to tend them, as we just read there. No one to work the ground. Now, clearly these are referring only to cultivated plants, not all plants in, in all the plants that exist. Right. In the same way, the trees uh, mentioned in Genesis 2, 9 are only the trees planted in the garden, not trees in general. If we start in verse 8, and the Lord God planted a garden in Eden, in the east, and there he put the man who he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and, for, and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Right, and verse 10 continues with the description of Eden. Now, part of the difficulty people have with reconciling chapters 1 and 2 is that coming from chapter 1, they assume that Genesis 2 is going to be an account of creation just like chapter 1. Which doesn't make a lot of sense. Um, <laughs> it should be right. evident that chapter 2 is not just another account of creation. Same identical account, yeah. yeah. Uh, because chapter 2 says nothing about the creation of the heavens and the earth, the atmosphere, the seas, the land the sun, the stars, the moon, the sea creatures, etc. Right. Chapter 2 mentions only things directly relevant to the creation of Adam and Eve and their life in the garden. Uh, God prepared them especially for them. Yeah. Uh, chapter 1 could be understood as an overview of creation. It's the big picture view with God telling us how he created. Here's what I did in the sequence in which I did it. One, two, three, four, five, six. Chapter 2 recaps the creation of man and woman, mm -hmm. providing details not provided in the first chapter, and particularly their situation in the special garden that God prepared just for them. Right, so, so take them both together to get the most complete picture of how God created the universe. Yeah. Uh, now, th there's another feature that appears throughout Genesis that helps us understand some of the differences um, in different parts of Genesis more clearly. The first of these is found in Genesis 2, 4. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created, in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. Now, yeah, generations is a translation of the Hebrew word toledoth, which means origin or record of origin. It identifies an account or a record of events. Uh, the, the phrase was apparently used at the end of each section in Genesis, identifying the patriarch Adam, Noah, or uh, the, the sons of Noah, or Shem, etc., to whom it primarily referred, and possibly who was responsible for that record. Here it gets interesting. Uh, there are nine main Toledoth-divided passages in, in Genesis. Right, they're kind of like signatures at the end of a letter, right? right. And, yep. and uh, that may indicate who wrote the section before it. So here's a chart showing the location of the Toledoth statements in, um, in the first column. Uh, the, the, the second column here shows the range of scripture each one covers. And the third column is the name of the Toledoth. And the last column gives us some of the main events recorded in that section of Genesis. So uh, there are eight Toledoth statements that divide Genesis into nine uh, sections here. Okay, note with the first one you see there, there's no person identified with that one. 
Uh, it's the account of the origin of the heavens and earth that it records the events of creation week from Genesis 1-1 to Genesis 2-4. This is because it refers primarily to the origin of the universe as a whole, not any particular person, not tied to any particular person. Mm -hmm. uh, Adam and Eve, uh, for example, aren't mentioned by name. Right, because only God knew the events of creation, so God had to right. reveal yeah. this, possibly to Adam, who recorded it. Then uh, Moses, much later as author of Genesis, as the Bible records in many places, acted as a compiler and editor of the various sections, adding explanatory notes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. So the Toledos acknowledged the sources of the historical records Moses used. Yeah, cool. Uh, this understanding emphasizes the historical nature of Genesis and its status as eyewitness history, contrary to the various theories that Genesis and, and, and other books of the Old Testament, the Pentateuch in particular, were written hundreds of years after Moses right. and, and based uh, simply on oral traditions passed down over many years. Yeah, each record was probably originally written on a stone or clay tablet like this one. Uh, this is a picture of the Nippur tablet. It's made of baked clay and dates to about 2100 BC, right around the time Abraham was born, which is about 350 years after the flood. Now, a portion of it records the, the details of the flood in a language that's very close to biblical Hebrew. And it, this tablet also predates the, uh, the famous um, uh, uh, the Gilgamesh epic. Mm. Um, the, the details are close to the biblical account of the flood, indicating that the Genesis account was not derived from this Babylonian myth, as is very often suggested. Right. The differences in the Toledoth statements of Genesis 2, uh, 4, and Genesis 5, 1 affirm that chapter 1 is the overview, the record of the origin of the heavens and the earth, whereas uh, chapter 2 is concerned with Adam and Eve, giving a more detailed account of Adam and Eve's creation. Right, yeah. Lots to think about. Uh, Genesis 1 and 2 are not contradictory. They're complementary. Put them both together to get the most complete picture of creation. Uh, for more details, there's a great article on our website titled Genesis Contradictions, and you can read it at creation.com slash Genesis-Contradictions. So let's continue. That makes sense. Yeah. <laughs> uh, notice that, the, let's go back to Genesis 2 verse 4. It suggests a shift in emphasis. In the first part of the verse, it's heavens and earth, and in the end part of the verse, it's earth and heavens. Mm. Now, scholars think that the first part of the verse would have been at the end of a clay or stone tablet recording the origin of the universe. The end of that verse would have been at the beginning of a second tablet containing the account of the events uh, on earth pertaining particularly to the creation of Adam and Eve. Mm. It's amazing to think of the possibility, as the Toledoth statements suggest, that perhaps it was God himself uh, who wrote Genesis yeah. 1. You know, the very first um, record shows no uh, writer's or owner's name apart from the expression when uh, they were created, which suggests that the set of tablets only uh, concerned God's work in creation. Yeah, that, that's, that's amazing. It, it, could have, it could have been Adam, uh, instructed by God, but God himself wrote the Ten Commandments on, on stone tablets. Yep. Uh, did he also write Genesis 1? That, that possibility exists. Yeah. For many more details on these uh, Toledo statements, there's a, a detailed article by Dr. Charles Taylor titled, Who Wrote Genesis? Are the Toledoth Colophons? Um, and that was uh, published in the Journal of Creation. It's now online at creation.com slash Toledoths. Yes. A colophon, by the way, is a publisher's emblem or statement containing information about the, the publication, such as you know, the author, the date, the subject of the work, the, uh, that, that type of thing. 
And that may be similar to what the Toledoth statements are. Mm -hmm. Uh, There are other differences uh, between Genesis 1 and 2, in addition to these, uh, that we'll get into in a minute, that cause some people to think that you can't take Genesis as as written, you know, you can't take it as history, always looking for an excuse or a reason to add millions of years. Right, yeah, that's true. But, you know, if, if people approach the Bible with the intention to find ways around what the text says, uh, for example, if they've become convinced that the universe really is billions of years old, right. as soon as they've manipulated the text in a way that pleases them, that fits that worldview, they don't dig into it any further. Right. Uh, you know, like we've been showing here with the, uh, a little bit of digging, there's no good reason to suppose that Genesis 1 and 2 are con- uh, contradictory. Exactly. And, and yep. that the history they record isn't accurate. They're different, but they're not contradictory. Right. Yet people look at surface differences between uh, the two chapters and conclude that, well, we, we can't take them as history. Let's pretend that it's a, a poetical account or, or a metaphor about creation or that somehow what Genesis really means to say is that we all evolved over millions of years. Yeah. It's ridiculous. Yeah. yeah. Tim Keller is just one example. He said uh, he's quite a popular uh, you know, in Christian circles, but he's way off on Genesis. Let's just, yeah, yeah, let's just be straightforward here. He said, perhaps the strongest argument for the view that the author in Genesis 1 did not want to be taken literally is a comparison of the order of creative acts in Genesis 1 and Genesis 2. He says that we can't read them both as straightforward accounts of historical events. He, I mean, he's obviously not familiar with what we've been discussing here today. He didn't do any, you know, so how much research did he really do before he came to this well, amazing conclusion it, it, that exactly. contradicts 2,000 years of biblical history? And like we said, this, this information isn't secret right. uh, that, that we're talking about today, but from, from that train wreck of a paper that he wrote, he wrote that for the evolutionary group BioLogos. Yeah. Like, BioLogos is a very well-funded organization that's trying to push Christians to believe evolution. Yep. Christians should have nothing to do with these people who are causing division in the church. Yep. So what's Keller doing there? We, CMI, did a review of, of Keller's paper. You can read it at creation.com slash Keller. It's, it's a good review. And in addition to the, the Genesis 1 and 2 thing that he can't seem to reconcile, it reveals a lot of other faulty conclusions that he has about Genesis. Yeah. CMI, uh, Creation Ministries International, exists to draw people to Scripture. Yes. BioLogos does the opposite. It's essentially telling people you can't trust Scripture. Yeah. Everywhere in the Bible where it talks about God creating in six days and a global flood, well, you just can't trust that. Yeah. Jesus talked about that. Yeah, exactly. And some theistic evolutionists say you can't trust what Jesus said about the uh, creation. You know that, that Jesus was wrong. Yeah, that's, that's heresy. Version. It is. <laughs> yeah. So how exactly do they label themselves as a Christian organization? Mm-hmm. Sad. Absolutely. Anyways, uh, is Genesis one and two are those two chapters contradictory? Um, contradictory, uh, or, or I guess we could say contrary to what some people believe, they're not. Right. Let's look at another surface difference that people have pointed out and used as an excuse to reject the historical nature, the clear historical nature of the Genesis creation account. Right. Well, here's one. People say that Genesis 1 and 2 are contradictory because chapter 1 and 2 use different names for God. Um, okay. So in yep. Yep. Genesis chapter 1, Moses uses Elohim for God. In Genesis 2, from verse 4 on, Moses adds the Hebrew term Yahweh. 
Elohim is the plural of El, which corresponds to God in English. And the use of Elohim tells us that there's something plural about God himself. Of course, the Bible goes on to describe God as a trinity, uh, the three persons of God. They're distinct, yet they're one substance or essence or nature, of course. Right. Elohim means the strong one and stresses the awesome omnipotence and power of God who is the creator and ruler over all nature and the whole universe. Yeah. In Genesis 2 from verse 4 on, Moses adds the Hebrew term Yahweh. Yahweh is often transliterated as Jehovah and is usually spelled Lord in large, uh, you know, in small caps, yeah, that, yeah. that kind of writing. Yeah. Yahweh is a, a truly personal name for the living God. It was revealed to Moses in the incident of the, the burning bush there in Exodus chapter 3. It means, I am who I am. Thus, the self-existent one. Mm -hmm. uh, it tells us that Elohim has a permanent existence and announces the faithfulness and unchangeableness of the one who is always true to his word, the same yesterday, today, and forever. Right. It's this, uh, the name that the God of compassion, grace, and mercy uses in his covenantal relationship with his chosen people as the protector and, uh, and the uh, object of their worship, yeah. as well as yeah. his personal relationship with people, particularly believers. Yeah, why did Moses use this different term for God in Genesis 2? Does it mean that there are two different and contradictory creation accounts of Genesis in, in, in 1 and 2? No. In Genesis 2, Moses describes God's very intimate and personal relationship with the first human pair, Adam yes. and Eve. This requires the use of God's name, Yahweh. But note that Yahweh is joined with Elohim every time it's used in Genesis 2 as Yahweh Elohim and is translated the Lord God. It tells us that Elohim, the supreme creator, is Yahweh, the one who is intimately concerned and uh, to maintain a personal relationship with those who walk and talk with him. Yeah, yeah. So Yahweh and Elohim are the same God. Critics who try to make Genesis 2 a second and contradictory version of chapter 1 fail to take into account what Moses plainly wished to convey here, that God, Elohim, is the all-powerful creator God of the universe and, and that he desires a personal, intimate relationship with us. Yahweh, Elohim and Yahweh, Lord God. There, there's a great article that goes into more details about this at creation.com slash what's in a name. Uh, more details than we have here, time to cover here. You know, the, the final word on this issue should uh, be given to the Lord Jesus. Absolutely. <laughs> right? And in Matthew chapter 19, verses 4 and 5, the Lord's uh, addressing the subject of marriage, and he, and he says, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female, and said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh? Right. Where do you that, quote from? <laughs> exactly. Notice how in the very same statement, and that statement you just mentioned, Jesus refers to both Genesis chapter 1, that's verse 27b there, male and female he created them, and Genesis 2 verse 24, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. And, and Jesus didn't see them as contradictory accounts, and if Jesus didn't see them as contradictory accounts, then they're not contradictory. Well, not only right? that, but his opponents were the religious lawyers of the day. If he'd said something that was contradictory and they thought that, they would have ripped him to shreds. Right. So, yeah. so let's review here. Um, you know, there are differences between Genesis chapters 1 and 2. Sure. Pe people yeah. have used the differences as an excuse to reject the, the creation account. And, and this is done usually in favor of some sort of millions of years scenario. However, with a, a little bit of uh, study, the accounts are not contradictory. The bottom line is that you, uh, you can take both accounts together and you'll get 
the most complete picture of what happened in creation. Yeah. It's a lot like the four accounts of the life of Jesus, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. They're not all identical. Take them all together and get the most complete account of the events of Jesus' life. We often get a lot of feedback from, uh, from folks, positive and negative, uh, yes. through our website. And we've got a great uh, feedback here today that will really fit in with the topic we've been discussing yeah. here. It's called, Are There Other Valid Interpretations of Genesis? That's what we called it. And it's from Susie B. from the U.K., uh, she was writing in response to the article, Why We Do What We Do. And here's what she said. I've been receiving your emails for a long while now, and I'm so encouraged by them. You have shown me the importance of the authority of Scripture right from Genesis to Revelation and how to truly read the Bible. Mm -hmm. However, I come across loving Bible-believing Christians who are concerned by creation ministries and Ken Ham's, etc.'s approach as being marketed as the only way to view Genesis and the creation story, even if they do recognize that evolution as taught in schools is not correct or biblical. I believe that creation ministries have got their interpretation of the Bible correct, but we must not push truly Bible-believing Christians away by the truth we believe we by faith have discovered. Can you ensure that your articles leave room for some prayerful biblical disagreement so that the church family can truly grow together and become sanctified as the Lord leads each individual to greater humility before him and greater understanding in his truth? Your work is so precious and so needed, but be careful to draw us all under the authority of Scripture and not the authority of creation ministries, Ken Ham, etc. Bless you for growing faithfulness in him who is the author and perfecter of our faith, Hebrews 12, 2 and 14, 15. All right. Well, uh, our New Testament scholar Lita Costner uh, replied to this, and we'll just read portions of, of uh, her response here. Uh, you suggest that we should leave room for disagreements so, so the church can truly grow together and become sanctified as the Lord leads each, indiv leads each individual to greater humility before him and greater understanding of his truth. And then Lita's response is, however, this suggests that young earth creationists are the ones being divisive <laughs> or introducing a problem, keeping people from growing together, etc. And you, did you get that? In, as, as you read the, her, her response, yep. that, that came through, didn't it? Yep. Uh, and, and Lita picked up on that. But young earth creationism was the universal view of the early church and throughout history taught up until long age views of geology starting ca started causing people or some theologians to reinterpret the relevant parts of the Bible. So who is being divisive? That question needs to be asked. Yep. Who is the one who's being divisive? Uh, and Lita asked it here. The, the people who are insisting on the historical plain meaning of the text or the people who are suggesting a new interpretation? Exactly. It's the, the people, do we need to answer that? It, it, there's, if, if there's a claim made by, by Scripture or by different people who are understanding Scripture differently, it's the one that says, hey, let's go with the scriptures, what the Scripture says. Not the, they're not causing division. It's the person who says, no, we need to twist it and let's not go with, with what Scripture says. Well, not only this, but really what does it mean to be open to other interpret what is exactly does that mean are we supposed to write an article that says look here's here's the grammatical historical interpretation of scripture this is what the word means in hebrew da 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 da, da. this is what a day means in context da, da da but it could mean all these there are no alternate views there there is a single view and people are either right or wrong right now, there is a right and wrong yes 
Now, she may have been comparing this to denominational issues, where there's, there's room, certainly, obviously there's room there for uh, different views and different worship styles and different modes of baptism and so on, as strongly as some people might feel about those things. Yeah. There's room for different views in Scripture. Um, amazing. Lita, Lita writes some, some other things here that are, that are interesting. We've written many times that creation is not a salvation issue. It's a bit of a different issue. Uh, you can be saved, a saved follower of Jesus, and hold to a different view of creation. But we do believe it's a gospel issue. Mm-hmm. Because exactly. believing in millions of years undermines the gospel. Exactly. It'll be a great uh, topic to look into. See yes. Both the Creation Magazine Live TV show and this podcast are produced by Creation Ministries International, a global think tank organization dedicated to disseminating the huge amount of scientific evidence for the accuracy of the biblical account of the origin of our universe. If you'd like to donate to keep this information coming, go to creation.com slash donate. And thanks for listening.